The rest of us, let's please open up our Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. I want to read them uh, for you now. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. And so they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah had said. Verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, these things took place at Bethany across from the Jordan where John was baptizing. Back in in verse 6, John the Apostle introduces us to John the Baptist. John the Apostle is writing this book of John, John the Baptist Um, is the one who the prophet said would come to prepare the way for the Messiah, the Word made flesh, the light of the world, the Son of God, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And in verse 7 of John 1, the apostle says of John the Baptist, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And verse 8 says, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And so uh, John the Baptist came as a witness. And we know that word became synonymous of, of a martyr. And what we know about a witness is they stand and they testify about the truth of something in an open court. And so that's really what it was. John came as a witness to the world, of the, basically to Israel, so that people would hear and repent and believe his message and receive Jesus Christ, the light, into their hearts, be born again. And John pointed people to the coming Messiah, and that was his, his role. And so today in verses 19 to 34, basically John the Apostle records for us this witness, the testimony of John the Baptist, John's recording of that witness. And so John's witness was a, was a powerful witness. His witness was uniquely empowered by God in a very dynamic way. He he witnessed and impacted a whole nation. Jesus said of of John in Matthew 11, 11, he says, Among those born of men, uh, born of women, there uh, has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus said, up until that point, there was no one greater than John the Baptist. If you keep reading uh, the rest of the verse, basically we know, but those, the least in the kingdom is greater than John. But his point was that as the Jews were looking at the nation of Israel and all those that came before, you looked at Moses and Elijah and all the prophets, Jesus said there was no one greater than John the Baptist. And that was massive in their minds. Luke's gospel in chapter 1, verses 13 through 17, tells us of the impacts of John's calling upon the nation of Israel that he would be great before the Lord. And then a few verses down, it says, he will be filled with the Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, that is the Messiah, in the spirit and power 
of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the people, uh, uh, for the Lord's, excuse me, a people prepared. And so John's ministry can be summed up basically in Matthew 3, 2, where he says, he comes on the scene and he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent means to turn away from your sin and to turn towards God. That's, that's what it means. And that repentance that John was preaching was to be manifested in actual relationships, how people lived. And so he's saying, if you're getting ready, uh, uh, well, he said he's going to come, he's going to turn the hearts of, uh, of the fathers towards their children and the children towards the wisdom of the just. Those are reconciliations. People's hearts are turning. The disobedient are becoming obedient. Um, the fathers who have neglected are going to now start looking at their children. Those are just examples of how the manifestation of the repentance was to sweep through Israel, the people of God, who said they were the people of God. Right? John had a powerful witness. Matthew tells us that as he went preaching, people were coming to him to be baptized by him, confessing their sins. The message was so powerful that people came to him and were willing to get, uh, have John baptize them in an actual river, the Jordan River. It was a dynamic national ministry as these people were coming and confessing their sins. John was empowered by the Holy Spirit and called a whole nation to repent and prepare for their Messiah. And many were responding so much so John was having such an impact on the people that he began to get the attention of the leaders of the country, the spiritual leaders of the country, actually, who were also the political leaders. They're all one in that case. And so in verse 19, where we pick up today, it says, And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem, the capital, to ask him, Who are you? Who are you? And so these religious leaders, um, the, the priests and the Levites from Jerusalem, they sent, basically the Pharisees, they sent delegates asking John who he was. Specifically, they wanted to know if John considered himself to be the Christ, the Messiah. We know from down in verse 24, if you're looking at John 1, that these delegates came from the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of the law, of Moses. So these, uh, the Sadducees were the other really, uh, religious group. There were two main groups, the, the Pharisees, who were basically um, the Bible guys, and then you had the Sadducees, who were basically the, the liberals. And the liberals kind of controlled the, the temple and the whole sacrificial system and all the other guys they taught. And they, were, they taught the Bible and all the law and all that stuff, and they were just arch enemies. The Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in anything supernatural, angels, nothing like that. The Pharisees believed in it all, but they were legalistic. And these two just absolutely were, were vying for power over another. But guess what? They had a common enemy, God, <laughs> whom they all claimed to serve. And they ended up joining forces and killing Jesus Christ. But both groups were, 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 there, uh, were kind of in this, in this cabal together. But the Pharisees were the, were the Bible guys. They were the ones sending people out and trying to find out, who do you say that you are? And according to their understanding, the Pharisees' understanding of the Old Testament prophecies, they were looking for the Christ. 
And they were looking for Elijah, and they were looking for the prophet, which I'm going to explain in a second. But you need to know that these religious people, they did not have genuine concern. They weren't going out and saying, hey, are you the Christ? I'm sure there were a couple in there, but they weren't. Because what was happening is the attention and the authority and all those things were being drawn away from them and onto some other guy, right? And I don't know about you, but when you're the big cheese and everybody starts looking at someone else, there's something that happens in your flesh and naturally in, in a nation, if you're not led by the Spirit, if you're not led by God, you're going you're gonna to start to power grab and do all these types of things. And so they send people out to say, who are you? Who do you identify with? Who, who, who do you think you are? That's basically the gist behind this, and that's played out in just a minute. But they weren't genuinely zealous about finding out if he truly was. They were sizing up a political opponent. It's interesting in Matthew 3, Matthew records John the Baptist's first encounter with these religious leaders. It's very cordial. Matthew 3, verse 7 When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones uh, to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork, he keeps going, his winnowing his fork is at his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Hello, I'm John the Baptist. <laughs> Who are you? No, that's, he wasn't pointing him to himself. But this is the message that John the Baptist speaks to the religious leaders of the day, these guys. He says, repent or burn. I'm baptizing with water, but there's one who comes to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The Holy Spirit is what we want. We don't want the fire part, which is judgment. It's not Holy Spirit fire. That's not what that is. So John didn't mix words with the religious leaders. He called them to repent. He called them to to turn. He called them and, and warned them for them to prepare because Jesus was coming. But they wanted to size John up. First, they wanted to know if John was the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? It's not Jesus Christ. It is a title. Christ is a title. It means anointed one, chosen one. The Messiah is another word for it. According to the Old Testament, the Christ who was the one who was promised to come and deliver Israel, to be Israel's deliverer. He would come, he was prophesied to deliver the people of God. Now, the first deliverance was to be a spiritual deliverance from sin. The second deliverance was to be a practical deliverance or a a physical deliverance from their enemies as he comes and establishes his kingdom. But the first one was to save them from the bondage of sin. 
where he would sacrifice himself in their place. Their whole nation, their whole history, all the, sacrifice, all the sacrifices, everything was pointing to him as the fulfillment from the priesthood to the temple to the sacrifices to everything was pointing to their Messiah to come and deliver them first from sin and then he would establish the kingdom. But they didn't really focus on the sin part. They focused on the physical deliverance because that seemed what was most important to them. How many of you want physical deliverance? How many of you want spiritual deliverance over physical deliverance? Yeah. And so you read the Bible the way you want it to read instead of what it says. Right? After we do the foundations class that our Pastor Arthur is going to be teaching in this, uh, this, this, this month, later this month, next month, in July, I'll be teaching a how to study your Bible class, basically three weeks on that. And it, it'll get into what it says, not how we want to say it, what, what we want it to say, amen? And that's going to be exciting as well. little shameless plug there. <laughs> but obviously saving the nation from the oppression of sin was not on their radar. Is it on yours? If you listen to um, a lot of the Christian music, a lot of the Christian messages, and all these types of things going on, what is the message that's being sent? I'm just, I want you to, to listen with discerning ears about what the message is being sent out there. Now, there's truth wrapped up in there, but is that what the truth of the gospel says? Is that what Jesus came to do? Is it all about making you not scared? Is it all about making you not alone? It's interesting. Now, do, are those byproducts? Because I will never leave you nor forsake you. Absolutely. Is that the central message of the gospel? Do we make it such? So anyways, be discerning in those things. But John emphatically denies when they said, are you the Christ? Are you the deliverer? Are you the one? Is that who you're saying you are? What does he say in verse 20? He confesses and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Emphatically, he says, no way. And so they said, well, what about Elijah? Flip left to the book of Malachi. If you go to the book of Matthew, which is the first of the gospel, it's the one right before that. There's a 400-year gap between Malachi and Matthew. It's the intertestamental period. There's, there's a little bit of silence there. But Malachi chapter 1, it's the last book in the Old Testament, right before the first book of the New Testament, right? Malachi 3.1. 400 years before Christ, the Lord speaks to Malachi says, Behold, Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so if John wasn't the Messiah, perhaps he was this messenger that was going to come before the Lord. Well, it connects, if you keep reading the book of Malachi, to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Flip, flip right until you get to Malachi 4, 5, where it says in Malachi 4, 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Before it comes, verse 6, And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a degree of utter destruction. So 
The Jews believed by reading their Old Testament that the Messiah was going to come, but before the Messiah, there was supposed to be Elijah who would come, is, is, is what they were thinking. Elijah was that prophet who was taken up in a chariot of fire, and they believed he would come right back before the Messiah would come and would be that messenger to get everybody ready. Even today, many Jews, if you go to like a Seder meal, uh, what they have is they have a, a seat that's empty at their table. That's for Elijah, apparently. And so they asked John in, in, in verse 21, back in John 1, it says, What then? Are you Elijah? And he says, I am not. Now it's interesting, Jesus' disciples in Matthew 17, 10 through 13, they asked about Elijah because they had heard the, uh, the Pharisees teaching on all this. And if you check it out in Matthew 17, 10 through 13, actually starting in verse 9, it says, And then they were coming down the mountain, this is after the transfiguration, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Verse 10, And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say first that Elijah must come? Elijah was up there on the mountain with Moses and Jesus. He says, Why, why are they teaching this? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. Thank you, Jesus, for clarifying. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. And so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist wasn't Elijah but he was operating in the power, in the spirit of Elijah. As Luke 1.17 says he would, and also as Malachi chapter 1 says he would. In other words, John the Baptist was in the role of, of a mighty prophet of God, warning people and preparing people for the Messiah. But John the Baptist testifies, I'm not literal Elijah. You need to know that. So their, their, their interpretation of Scripture was partially off. And then there was a third figure in the Old Testament that the Pharisees were looking for, the prophet. And this comes from Deuteronomy 18.15, where God is speaking to Moses and says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. God says, I'm going to raise up someone like me from among you. That's a trip. And so they were thinking that this mighty prophet was like Moses, like a deliverer, but it was to be like God. He would be raised up from among them. So they were looking for a Christ. They were looking for a prophet, and they were looking for, well, they were looking for uh, Elijah. They were looking for a prophet. And in verse 21, he says, no, I'm, I'm not that guy either. John says, no, I'm not the prophet. It's interesting when Jesus was transfigured and Moses and Elijah are up there uh, and Peter decides like, man, he's all, this is good. I'm seeing Elijah, I see Moses, and I see Christ. These guys are all important. What I'm going to do is I'm going to build a tabernacle for each of them. I guess that's a Jewish way of saying this is awesome and I'm going to show honor and respect to each one of them. I'm going to build each tent. We can hang out together, right? So he does that in a thick cloud encompasses them all, all of a sudden, and a voice speaks from the cloud and says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Interesting. Just as God had said to Moses, the Lord your God will raise up 
For you, a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Listen to him. They were looking for the Christ who would deliver them. They were looking for a deliverer from their circumstances. They were looking for Elijah who would restore all things. They were looking for deliverance. They were looking for restoration. And they were looking for the prophet, one that was greater than Moses. They were looking for all of that. Anyone else? But all those roles... All those things were fulfilled in one person. They were fulfilled in Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth, the eternal creator, the son of God, the savior. Jesus is the Christ. He is the chosen deliverer, not only for sin, but also a physical deliverance that is coming at his second coming. Jesus is the Elijah in that he will be the one who will restore all things. Remember Revelation 21, 5 and 6, where he says, who I am the alpha, uh, basically I am he who makes all things new, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He's going to make all things new. Jesus is the one who's going to restore all things. And Jesus is the great prophet, the one greater than Moses, who came from among them, greater than Moses. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. So John testifies, says, no way. I'm not any of that. Verse 22, so they said, who are you then? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Verse 23, and he said, I am the the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John doesn't even give them the answer they want, which is a title. John actually points them to the words of Isaiah from 600 years ago. He says, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, "Make uh, make straight the way of the Lord. And so it is so tempting, isn't it, when people inquire about us. We like to tell them about us. I mean, I would have taken this opportunity to share about how special I am. Anyone else? (laughs) Especially if you have that dynamic of ministry. I'm like, well, gosh, here's my webpage and my card, and here's all my messages, and look at all the things I've done, and anyone else? I mean, just how stupid we get, right? It's so (laughs) tempting. And here John is, gifted by God, empowered by God, speaking to a nation of people, dynamic things are happening, and the the government comes and starts asking him about who he is. And yet, his witness is all about pointing people to Jesus. He even said of himself, I must decrease and he must increase. John was bold and he was dynamic powerfully used by God, and yet he was also humble, knowing who he was in the light of the glory of the Lord. He was simply the herald that was preparing the people for the eternal God in the flesh. Verse 24, and now when they had been sent from the Pharisees, that is the Levites, right, and the priests, verse 25, they asked him, then then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor the Elijah, nor the prophet. In other words, if you don't claim any authority, 
any title, if you aren't Christ, if you aren't Elijah, if you aren't the prophet, if you aren't any of these people that are important, then what are you doing baptizing because we didn't authorize you to do it? Right? That's <laughs> what it comes back to. And so they received a letter from the city that he was out of code, right? <laughs> True, we submit, right? To authority. What are you doing? Baptism in the Old Testament was symbolic for spiritual cleansing. And what would happen is, not, not for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, those outside who wanted to become the covenant people of God would go through a symbolic thing where they, were, they would go through all these things, but basically they would be spiritually cleansed. And, and, and the, sim- the symbolism was in the water. You'd be cleansed and then you'd be brought, baptized into the saving covenant community of God's people. That's what the picture was. Into the, the community of the Jews and And that was all handled by the religious authorities that God had delegated. It's interesting, Jesus in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, speaks to his disciples after his resurrection. What does he say? All what has been given to me, all authority has been given to me, right, on heaven and earth. Verse 19, what does he say? Because of this, therefore, what does he say? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Jesus has authority, and he authorizes his disciples to go. And Jesus has authorized us to go and make disciples. Very interesting there. And look at John's response again in verse 26. They're going, hey, why, why aren't you baptizing? Why are you baptizing, I mean? What authority do you have? Verse 26, and John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. John doesn't point them to his credentials. He doesn't point him to his website. He doesn't point him to all those things. He says, I baptize with water. My ministry is limited. Water is symbolic. The water wasn't special. It's all pointing to someone. John's baptism was getting people's hearts ready to be baptized with the Holy Spirit by their Messiah. John's baptism was one of repentance. John wasn't the focus, church. The water wasn't the focus. John was a messenger. The water was symbolic. John was using the symbolism of the Old Testament baptism, which again was used of those outside of a saving covenant to be brought inside to a saving covenant as a symbol of that spiritual cleansing. And so the priests would baptize as a symbol of that conversion, right? And here John is baptizing, but he is baptizing Jews who were supposed to be saved. Isn't that wild? He's not baptizing Gentiles, although they were mixed in because there were soldiers and other people, but he was baptizing Jews who were supposed to be saved, who were supposed to be in the covenant. And so John's baptism was something to behold as people who thought they were saved because they were Jews were convicted over their sin. As he said before, 
don't say to me, because you're a, you know, you're a descendant of Abraham, you've got anything going for you. God can raise up those people from, from the stones. And these people were convicted and they began to confess their sins and to ask for forgiveness, all in preparation for the, for the coming Messiah. And so John's baptism was the way that people publicly were repenting and preparing themselves for the Messiah. In verse 33 says, John says, it's, he's the one who baptized, one's, who, one's coming who isn't the one who baptized with water, but the Holy Spirit, right? Verse 33 talks about John, uh, about Jesus. Jesus is the one who's coming, who baptized not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. The religious leaders were seeing John baptized and saying, hey, if you have no authority, if you aren't the Christ, Elijah the prophet, then why are you baptizing? Who are you? And John doesn't even draw attention to himself in his testimony. What does he do? He says, I baptize with water, but get ready for verse 26. Among you stands one you do not even know. Verse 27, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. John the Baptist said, among you stands one you do not know. You don't know me. That isn't important. <laughs> There's one among you you truly need to know, and you do not know him. And he is greater. Back in verse 10, John the Apostle said of himself, he was in the world, uh, sorry, said of Jesus, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. They didn't even know him. Do you know Jesus? You might know a pastor, you might know religious people, you might know church, you might know all those things. It really doesn't matter. There's one greater who's all of our sandals, not even worthy to untie. It is to him we must give an account. It is to him we must answer. It is to him alone who saves. He was in the world. He was around them, and they didn't even know him. They were thoroughly acquainted with religious stuff. They did all the religious stuff. They went to synagogue. They went to church. They, they did the sacrifices. They paid their tithes. They did all those things. They were in the covenant people of God, so to speak, but they never, never repented. They never knew him. The gospel was preached to religious people. I know we're living in, a, in an age of atheism, but Jesus came to the Jews and then he come to, came to a group of pagan idol worshipers who were totally lost as well. And his own people who were supposed to know him, they rejected him. And so what did he have to do, which was his plan all along, was to go out to Walla Walla and go get those Gentiles. If you're Jewish this morning, I apologize, but you know what I'm saying. but most of the religious leaders, they would remain in their spiritual darkness and never know or receive the very Christ that they were looking for because their, heart, their hearts were hardened and they loved their darkness rather than light. They weren't really seeking after the Lord. John the Baptist says in verse 27, he says of Jesus, 
even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not even worthy to untie. It says that the one who's coming, he, he comes after me, but he's greater than me. We know that Jesus was born six months after John from Luke 1 and 2. Yet, John points them away from himself, even though he's older. He says, listen, he just points to Jesus, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. It's, it's kind of hard to get this. You, you guys remember the, the, well, the role of the lowest slave in that culture was to take care of people's feet. When they came to be, this is why Jesus washed people's feet. And he says, you want to become the greatest, you need to become the least, Right? And, and culturally, that, like, that hit home. Even today in the Middle East, like the bottom of the feet are like, they're bad. So when, you guys see the, this is, some of you will get this, but remember when Saddam was saying, like his, his thing fell down, and all of a sudden the, the statue uh, came down in Iraq 1, right? And all the people got there with their shoe, and they're smacking them on his face. And you're like, what are these people doing? They're, they're taking the dirtiest, most part of their, of their of culture and they're smacking it against his face saying disrespect to you. Remember George Bush was given the press conference? Remember the shoe thing? Someone threw a shoe at him? You're going, what is with the shoes? That's with the shoes. That's what's going on. Still hanging on. John didn't even consider himself worthy to untie his shoes. <clears throat> Such humility. Do not mistake humility with a lack of speaking, a lack of sharing the gospel. Humility is not just it's, it's knowing your place before the Lord. He was called to share. He knew he was unworthy to do it. And so the, the, the spirit in which you actually do these things is important because you're not doing it according to what you want and how you feel and how they perceive you. You're, you're speaking, trying to honor the one who sent you and whom you represent, correct? In, in his character, and his, his thinking. And so when he's saying, hey, you brood of vipers, it was more important for him to communicate the truth of their true spiritual condition to them than to make sure that they're okay in the conversation. And we have a lot to learn from John, don't you think? We can be bold and yet humble. Did you know that? And how do you become humble and bold? You just got to go do it and, f- and the Lord will show you that you weren't humble or you weren't bold or whatever it might be. But when the Holy Spirit empowers us to speak, be a representative, but man, when as soon as the glory starts to shine your way as a servant of Jesus Christ, take a step from John's book and who do we deflect the glory to? Oh, but there's one greater than me. When they want to get into your dynamic and how wonderful you are, we, we turn it back to the one who receives all glory and all honor and all praise. At the end of the day, we're going to take our crowns and cast them at his feet anyways, Amen. Jesus says, you want your reward? You receive the praise of men. There you have it. Have fun with that. You want a reward from the Lord that does not fade and go away. That's what I want at the end of my life. But John the Baptist here, such humility, a man used mightily of God in witnessing, yet always directing towards the Son of God. 
In verse 26, things, these, t- these things took place, place in Bethany, across from the Jordan where John was baptizing. And just, just as a note, this isn't Bethany next to Jerusalem. It's a different Bethany. There's a Bethany over by the Jordan. And so he's clarifying there which Bethany it is in case you guys are ever there and get lost. <coughs> and finally, I just want to read verse 29. The next day, Jesus was coming towards him and said, this is what John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is where I'd like us to focus as we end our service. Here John is witnessing, defecting all attention, all glory to the the one who is coming, and now here he is walking towards John. And what does John do? It's the first words out of his mouth as he declares to the people, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This is how he introduces Jesus. He's been talking about him, been speaking about him, about how terrifying he is, about how he will judge the earth and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire and all these things. And then he points people directly to a Savior. That in Him is the saving that we need. He's full of grace and full of truth. This is the one you need to come to. You've been prepared. You've been crying out. You've been repenting. You've been turning. It's all focused to Him. Look at Him. He's the one who takes away your sin. And He focuses Him as a lamb. That's how He introduces Him. The Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. The Jews were expecting a deliverer, the Christ, but their mind was set on a political and economic and a military savior. They were expecting, you know, physical stuff as well, whatever it might be, and Jesus did some of that, but Jesus became a man to die in their place. He became a man to die in our place. To take the curse of judgment upon us, to take the the full weight of sin uh, uh, upon him to take the wrath of God upon himself to step in the place of judgment of receiving judgment from God for you, for me for our incredible darkness a saving grace that came from outside not from within Jesus was the sacrificial lamb of God in the Old Testament those who were God's were to sacrifice a lamb to atone for their sins or a bull or a pigeon, depending on how, how much economic, um, how, where they were in the, in the scale. But there was to be a sacrifice, innocence for guilty, and that was the picture. It was always the picture. But those sacrifices could never take away man's sins. They were only looking forward to they would look to that sacrifice as atonement. In other words, it would cover the sin. It would cover our sin as you looked forward. But it came to the place, it was all pointing to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who would take away our sin. It's so important to know. Abraham, when he was sacrificing his son in Genesis chapter 22, he obeyed. He took his son, his only son whom he loved, up to a hill that God had commanded him. And he was going to bring the knife down on his son as he's on the wood, all the things. And then God stops him and he says, you know, now I know that, you'll, that you're hearing me and obeying. It really wasn't God 
trying to find out information. It was really for Abraham's sake and ours. He says, do not lay a hand on the kid, for I will provide myself a sacrifice. And what had happened is there was a ram in the thicket, and he took and sacrificed that in his son's stead, so to speak. And it's a picture because 2,000 years later on that very spot, another father took his son, and yet he did not stop, and the knife came down and was plunged, so to speak, in Christ for our sin. That whoever would believe upon him would have deliverance, would not perish, but would have everlasting life. That is the gospel. The people repent and they believe, would be forgiven and given his life for ours. And as we close our service, we want to celebrate communion, a time for believers to remember as Jesus was gathered on that last night before he was betrayed. They were doing the, the uh, basically the Seder meal, or they had a, a, the Passover meal. And they're all waiting there and they, and they have these cups and they had the bread and it was all symbolic as they were looking back when Moses, at the time of Moses, when, when the Israelites were in bondage to Egypt, which is, a, which is a type of sin, and God brought through destruction through the land and, and to keep them from dying, their firstborn son from dying, God told them, take the, the blood of a lamb and put it on your doorpost. And then the destroyer is going to come over and he'll destroy everyone who doesn't have the blood of the lamb. And that's the picture of Christ. Christ was slain that we might live. He died, we live, and those without Christ perish. And so when Jesus is taking the blood and, and, and we, it, oh, oh, he's taking the cup at the communion, he's saying, man, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for you. In other words, there's a new covenant. The old covenant was a sacrificial system. The new covenant is the sacrifice has been made once and for all times, Hebrews tells us. It was in him. His blood is done once. It covers, it takes away our sin. His body was broken that we might be healed. And so when we look to these little symbols, remember, like the water is a symbol. The essence is in Christ. The cup of juice is a cup of juice. But it, it, it points us to the essence of Christ. His blood was shed. His body was broken that you might live. And so, this morning, we, we don't look at the shadow. We look at the reality of Jesus. When we believe in Christ, we're baptized with the Holy Spirit. We're baptized into the new covenant. Water is a symbol of that reality. If you have not been baptized, it's something that Jesus absolutely commands everyone who is a believer to do because he wants you to publicly and wholeheartedly declare the reality of what he has done spiritually in your heart. You see? I'm married but I publicly declare it. I don't take this off, put it on. I'm married whether I have it or I don't. Correct? But I publicly declare I'm spoken for. I'm in a covenant. Baptism is that. In, in this time, as we remember Jesus as well, 
It's the two things the Lord asks us to do. Be baptized, and he asks us to remember him. Remember the sacrifice that he made for you. Remember the covenant you entered in with him through his blood, through his sacrifice. And then the practical application of that, church, is demonstrated in our love for one another, in our repentance. Fathers being restored to their children. Children, the disobedient, being restored to their parents. That's just an analogy for soldiers not taking advantage of their position, people not lying on their taxes, all this kind of stuff that's peripheral. It's all because the kingdom is in our heart. The king is in our hearts now. We're changed. So this is a time to remember, but not religiously. I don't know how to say that. Inauthenticity. And so, may the Spirit call us to repentance that we might be genuine witnesses of Jesus Christ. Not because you come to this building, but because you are the blood-bought church. And may your witness go out into the world by how you live and how you love one another because you're in communion with Him. Amen? So let's pray, and then as, we, as, as I get done praying, um, please take the elements back to your seat, make a line, whatever you want to do, grab the stuff, bring it back to your seat, and spend time with one another. And I always say this, if, if things are broken between someone in the room or whatever's going on, make it right. And it doesn't have to be perfect right. <laughs> Begin, turn, right? Lord God, we come to you, and we want to thank you that we can come to you only through the blood of Jesus Christ. You broke yourself, Lord, that we would be brought close to you. Your life was laid down that it might be picked up by us, Lord, that your life would be infused into us, that your life would be given to us. And so, God, we we just rejoice in that this morning. I love that song we sing this morning about uh, the fairest Lord Jesus. Fair are the meadows, fairer still are the woodlands, robed in the blooming garb of spring. And I just think of how beautiful this, this creation is that you've given us. And everything we can look at that's amazing, but Jesus is fairer, Jesus is purer, who makes the woeful heart to sing. And I pray our, our woeful hearts, Lord, as we... Uh, are of course weighed down with stuff we've done, would, would sing because you are our Savior. And so, Lord, we love you now. And we celebrate you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Lord, thank you for this time in your word, a time in your presence, a time of communion with you and your people. We desire that you would do a great work in and through this local body that many would come to know you, Lord, would come to know your Son, would see him alive in us, would hear his gospel and his precepts, Lord, in our lips and our hearts, would see us even in our failures, God, aspire to be like you and to live out 
the things of the kingdom of which we've been born into. And so, Lord, we praise you and we give you all honor and all glory, Lord. We love you. You are the fairest. You're the most beautiful of all. And we know that one day you will come back for us and you will shout and you'll establish your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Until then, Lord, establish it in our hearts and the hearts of those around us in this lost community. And may they know you. May they know eternal life. And I'm so thankful that we get to be a witness of that. In the name of Jesus, amen.